So last week I read this post from a friend of mine on Facebook. It said this, The baby in the manger came to tell us the worst news ever because until we accept the worst news ever, we'll never want the best news ever. And I thought, well, now that's an interesting quote. I wonder who said that. So I Googled that. It's actually from an Advent devotional by a guy named Paul Tripp, some of you are familiar with. And in this particular devotion, he talked about how amazing it is that God would become a baby and take on human flesh and, and come into the world and endure hunger and pain and injustice and death and how amazing it is that God would take on human flesh and come and rescue us. And then he, he writes this, Why would God do such a thing? What would motivate Him to go to such an unthinkable extent? Whenever you see people do the unexpected or the unusual, it is natural to ask yourself, why they thought that their radical action was necessary. This is where the Christmas story is the worst news ever. I'm going to ask you to humbly open your heart to the second part, the bad news of the Christmas story. God had to invade our world in the person of Jesus because there was simply no other way. And why was there no other way? Prepare for the bad news. There was no other way because our big problem in life is not familial, or historical, or societal, or political, or relational, or ecclesiastical, or financial. The biggest, darkest thing that all of us have to face, and that somehow, some way, influences everything we think, say, and do, isn't outside of us. It's inside. If you had none of the above problems in your life, you would still be in grave danger because of the danger you are to yourself. If the only thing human beings needed were a little external tweaking of their life circumstances, then the coming of Jesus to earth wouldn't make any sense. But if the greatest danger to all of us lives inside us and not outside us, then the radical intervention of the incarnation of Jesus is our only hope. And so Tripp is saying in order to to get the good news of Christmas, you first have to understand the bad news of Christmas. Now, why is that? Well, because... That's the only way the good news will have any meaning. Um, Think about if you are sick and you don't realize you're sick. If you never understand that, then you'll never go to the doctor and perhaps find out, hey, there's medicine available and your condition is perfectly treatable. And so for Christmas to make sense to us, for it to be life-giving, we have to understand the bad news portion of it. Otherwise, it's just nostalgia and candy canes and shopping and Christmas spirit. But... But what does all that mean at the end of the day? And, you know, if you think about it, this jives with what we've been doing. Talking about bad news fits with the book of Hosea. Because the book of Hosea is is filled with a lot of bad news. We're we're finishing it up today. And it's about uh, people who walk away from God. People who decide that life will go better without God in the picture. And then it shows where all that is going to lead them. It's a picture of a broken people. It's a picture of God's wrath being poured out. And so it has a lot of bad news. But even though the book of Hosea is crammed with bad news, there are little beacons of light. There's good news interspersed throughout the book. And then it ends with very good news. The book of Hosea ends with an invitation to return to God. It ends by painting a picture of the welcome that you and I receive when we do return to God. And so what we're going to do this morning is we are going to talk about the bad news of Christmas. But then we're going to finish with the very 
good news. So let's look at this. We're reading from Hosea 14, Matthew 1, and John chapter 3. This is God's Word. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to Him, Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoot shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright, upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. From Matthew 1, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Then John chapter 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Pray with me. Father, we thank You this morning. Um, for the good news of the gospel, uh, yet we know for the good news to make sense, we have to understand the bad news first. And so I pray that you would help us to understand the bad news, but not in a way that causes us to despair, uh, cause us to understand it in a way that causes us to turn to Jesus, uh, the only Savior. Uh, would you help us, help me to communicate the gospel clearly? Uh, Father, would you be in the business this morning of giving ears to hear and hearts to believe? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's, um, like I said, let's start with the bad news. So what's this danger lurking inside of each one of us that Paul Tripp is talking about? Well, what does the angel tell Joseph? What's, what's Jesus coming to do? He's coming to save his people from their sins. Uh, what does Hosea say in verse 1 of chapter 14? You have stumbled because of your iniquity. Or the NIV would say because of your sin. And sin is something we can define that, we can understand what that is. Sin is breaking God's law. Sin, uh, excuse me, God says, don't steal, we steal. That's sin, that's breaking God's law. 
Uh, sin is not conforming to God's law. God tells us to be generous, and it, often we find ourselves being greedy, and so we don't conform to God's law, and that too is sin. Uh, we could use Tim Keller's definition of sin. Uh, sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity and your relationship and service to God. Sin is seeking to become oneself to get an identity apart from Him. It's seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, purpose, and happiness than your relationship with God. It's defining myself by what I have, by what my occupation is, by where I live, um, by who my friends are, by how much pleasure I'm getting out of life, without any reference to God. If my most fundamental identity as a person is being a preacher, then really at the end of the day, that's sin and will lead to all sorts of neuroses and sin in my life. Uh, We could use the definition Hosea works with and that James works with in the New Testament that sin is spiritual adultery. Hosea describes God's people as adulterers who have left God and and run after other lovers instead. Uh, In verse 3 of Hosea, we see that some of those other lovers are military might and trusting in other countries and uh, making idols and trusting in the work of their own hands. And so we can define sin a multitude of ways and, and the book of Romans kind of drives it home and says all have sinned. We've all sinned. Nobody is immune from this. Everybody falls under this condition. We've all sinned and we've all been sinned against. And so we're bruised and we're broken. Uh, Ted, excuse me, Paul Tripp says this. He goes on, sin is the bad news of the Christmas story. Jesus didn't come to earth to do a preaching tour or to hang out with us for a while. He came on a radical mission of moral rescue. He came to rescue us because he knew that we couldn't rescue ourselves. He knew that sin separates us from God and leaves us guilty before him. He knew that sin makes us active enemies against God and what he says is good, right, and true. He knew that sin blinds us to the gravity of our condition and our dire need for help. He knew that sin causes us to replace worship of God with an unending catalog of created things that capture the deepest allegiances allegiances of our hearts. He knew that sin renders all of us unable to live as we were designed to live. And he knew that sin was the final terminal disease that without health would kill us all. But the Christmas story tells us something more. It tells us that Jesus knew that even if we were aware of the great danger within us, in our own wisdom and strength, we could not help ourselves. To every human being, sin is the ultimate undefeatable enemy. It captures and controls us all, and there is nothing we can do. It is either the height of arrogance or the depth of delusion to think that you are okay. None of us is okay apart from the invasion of grace that is the core purpose for the coming of Jesus. Now, you probably expect a preacher to talk about sin, and that doesn't surprise you, I'm sure, this morning to to hear me saying these things. That's a biblical viewpoint on things but even secular psychology today would acknowledge that there is something wrong with us Uh, i was reading an article this week called bad news on human nature 10 findings from psychology these guys are are not believers but i'm going to read all 10 of these but just listen to the three of their findings and i won't go into all the research but these were their, their big picture things 
We view minorities and the vulnerable as less than human. Like that's a, that's a human tendency that, that we do that. We experience pleasure at another person's distress by the age of four. We are moral hypocrites and take a far lighter view of our own moral failings than the failings of others. Again, y'all know, I'm like, we, I'll excuse it in me, but it's a big deal in you. And so there's, there's something wrong in us. Both Christianity and modern psychology point this out. There's something wrong with us. Um, but, but this is a point, I think, where we often misunderstand Christianity. We think Christianity is walking into this situation and telling us basically, hey, look, you need to clean up your room. You need to get your act together. And we think either, well, I don't really want to fool with cleaning up my room, or we think, well, I can, I'll, I'll put it off and I'll take care of that whenever I get ready to take care of that. I'll, I'll get around to it. But that's not what Christianity is saying. Christianity is saying that the bad news is, is, is really bad. The bad news is that the, the laundry is piled up so high in your room that it looks like you're a hoarder. And you don't just need to clean it up. You're like buried underneath all of it and you're suffocating. And you need someone to climb into the dirty laundry and actually actually pull you out of it. That's our condition. Uh, We tend to think, though, that our misdeeds are not that significant. We can explain them by stress, we're stressed out, we're hungry, it's somebody else's fault. And yet... Scripture is saying, no, 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 your sin is so significant that Jesus had to die in order to rescue you from it. That's the bad news of Christmas. And that doesn't really sell. You know, that's, that's not really something we want to hear. Even Christians get tired of hearing that, I'm, I'm sure. But if you don't believe that, I'd argue that all Christmas is ever going to be to you is just sentimental. It'll be time for memories and nostalgia and families and and that's all fun and good like we enjoy all that but family members die the excitement of opening gifts wears off the gifts themselves we all know aren't that exciting after a while you get tired of the commercialism and tired of the traffic some of us even get tired of the music you know who you are Um, Christmas night even always feels a little blue to me uh, because it's all over, right? We've been building up this and we did it and it's all over and yet the world is still the same on Christmas night because I have a problem that a holiday won't fix at the end of the day. Well, what if I believe that? What if I believe that I had a problem that, you know, the PlayStation 5000 or whatever it is that I'm wishing for this Christmas, what if I believe that I had a problem that that couldn't fix? That, in fact, that can become just one more way of trying to fix the brokenness in my life. I've I've told you all a story before. In one of the rooms in our house, there was a hole in the drywall. And the previous owners, instead of fixing the drywall, just put wallpaper over the hole. And so you can run your hand along that. And you're like, oh, let's not push too hard right there. And we covered it up with something else now. But they just just papered over the, the hole in the wall. Christmas can be like that. It can just be one more way of trying to paper over the the hole in our hearts, the ache in our life. We just try to cover it over with a holiday for a few days. What if we understood that the point of the holiday isn't the magic of Christmas? The, The magic of Christmas can't fix me. But the Christ of Christmas can. And at 
brings us to the good news. So look again, the bad news, God's people in Hosea's day are headed into exile where they're going to face the judgment of God. The good news for the people in Hosea's day is that God is inviting them to return. He's showing them what it will look like to return. And he promises to restore them when they do return. The bad news for us, the bad news of Christmas is that we too are in exile. And yet God is inviting us to return. And he shows us what it looks like to return. And he promises to restore us when we do return. And so let's look at that kind of in those three parts. First, God invites us to return. Look at verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. You know, when we walked out the door, when we left God, God didn't change the lock and get a restraining order. He didn't put a pit bull in the front yard. He's not sitting on the front porch in a rocking chair with a shotgun, you know, saying, get out of my yard, don't come near me again. He actually invites us to return, to come back. Does, does that ever amaze you or just kind of hear so much of that just kind of washes over you? Are you ever amazed that he invites us to return? That after we've slept around with other gods, after we've thrown ourselves into the arms of other lovers, are you ever amazed that God is willing to take us back, to invite us to return? It's an amazing thing. That's good news. Secondly here, God shows us what it looks like to return. Look at verse 2. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Uh, Think about the book of Hosea. Now, he's criticized them for a lot of things, obviously. He criticized them for their prayerlessness. He's called out their going through the religious motions, thinking somehow that's going to make everything okay. Um, Back in chapter 6, we read, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And what he's, what, what he's saying there is, look, I want you. I don't want you just like going through the motions trying to pay me off somehow. I want you. I want a relationship with you. Uh, think about human relationships where somebody has, has sinned against you in some way. And there's a break in that relationship. What happens for that, in order for that relationship to be restored is that they have, to, they have to come back and they have to bring with them words, so to speak. They have to verbally acknowledge what they've done wrong. They can't just act like everything's okay. Right? They have to, to verbally come back and confess and own what they've done. Now, good country songs understand this. Okay? Uh, Chris Stapleton, any Chris Stapleton fans? Okay, a few. I've failed the rest of you as a pastor, but we'll, we'll work on that. Um, he, he's got a song called I Was Wrong. Right? And, and this, is, this is what he says. I've been thinking about my thoughtless words, and I know just how much they must have hurt, and I take it back. Won't you let me take it back? You know I told you that I don't love you, that I'd be better off with someone new, but I take it back. Won't you let me take it back? Girl, you know that I still love you, and you know that I'm so alone. I don't know why I told you that I didn't need you. Can't you see that, baby, I was wrong? Thomas White wanted to sing that this morning, but I told him no. Um, but, but that's that. You know, that's what we do if there's a break. If, so, if we've wronged somebody, we have to, we have to take words with us. We don't just walk back in and act like everything's okay. That's how people relate. That's how persons relate. God is a 
personal God. And when you leave God, He's saying, look, you, you've got to come back to me and bring words with you. You've got, to, you've got to talk to me. You've got to engage me. You've got to treat me as a personal God with whom you want to establish a relationship. Don't just start going to church again. Oh, that, that's good. Don't just start tithing again. Oh, that, that's good. Don't just go through the religious motions, but, but bring with you words. Engage me. Communicate with me. Uh, think about the prodigal son, the younger brother who's gone off into the far country. What's he do before he gets ready to come home? He, he thinks about what he wants to say. He prepares the words of your brain. Now, what does that communication look like? What do those words that we bring back look like? Well, look in verse 2. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all our iniquity, or forgive all our sins. Accept what is good, which, which means accept our genuine and sincere confession. And, then, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips, which probably means something like we will offer our words like they were sacrificial offerings. And they're, and they're trying to express we're not just going through the motions here. Like this, is a, this is a genuine return. This is a genuine owning of sin and asking God for his forgiveness. The prodigal son, we said he prepared words to take with him. Do you, do you remember what those words were? He said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so we, we bring with us words and we confess and ask for forgiveness. But then secondly, we renounce our idols. We renounce the, the God substitutes we've been looking to. Look at verse 3. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. Now, you're probably not trusting in horses. Um, but, but there are these, all these things that all of us put our hope in instead of God. What your friends think of you. What, what you're going to get for Christmas. Uh, what you're going to be, what title you're going to have in life, getting the right job. We can all fill in the blank with things we look to for meaning and significance instead of looking to God. And what this does is it calls us to call those out particularly. To, to name the idols that we've been trusting in and to renounce those. To, na- to name the sins particularly and to renounce those. Every week we give we're given the opportunity to confess our sins generally, like we do that together, and then we take a minute and we we are silent and we confess our own sins silently. And that's the opportunity for you to be particular, not just to say generically, yes, I've sinned, but I've, I've gossiped, I've lusted, I've lied, to own your particular sins before God. And so we confess, we ask for forgiveness, we renounce our idols, and then finally... We put our faith in God's fatherly love. Look at, look at the end of verse 3. In you the orphan finds mercy. In you the orphan finds mercy. What if in spite of all of our rebelling and running away and doing our own thing, God still loves us? Uh, we saw this in Hosea chapter 11 where we read, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? 
How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboiim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. In the parable of the prodigal son again, so the, the younger brother has prepared these words that he's going to say and he comes home and the father sees him coming. And the father sees him from a distance and he runs out to greet him. He pulls up his robe and he gathers it and he runs, which would have been a very undignified thing for a man in that culture to do. And when he gets to his son, he grabs him and he hugs him and he kisses him and his son starts his speech. He's prepared it. Now he's going to give it. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he can say, make me like one of your hired servants, the father stops him. He basically says, shut up, man. I love you. You are not coming home as a servant. You're coming home as my son. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to, to pay off the debt. You don't have to make it right. I love you. I love you. And he says, bring the best robe. And, and the best robe would have been one of the father's own robes, which would have signified, hey, this guy is welcomed back into the family. He says, I'm, I'm covering all of your nakedness. I'm covering all of your poverty with my robe. He even tells his servants to go and kill the fattened calf. And they only had meat on very special occasions because it was so expensive. It was a delicacy. And then he invites the whole village. And they have a party and there's music. And there's dancing. There's joy. Because this son who's lost has come home. Now if you think about that, the son hadn't really understood the father's mercy before. He knew he needed to come home. But he didn't understand how he was going to be welcomed. But now he does. Now he does. See, at the end of the day, I think what changed that son, at the end of the day, what brought him all the way home, what brought him out of the driveway and into the house was seeing his father's love and seeing the welcome that he was receiving. Uh, Mufford and Sons has an old song, it seems that all my bridges have been burned. But you say that's exactly how this grace thing works. It's not the long walk home that will change this heart but the welcome I receive with a restart. It's the welcome we receive that changes us, the welcome of the Father when we return home. So, Scripture shows us the welcome we can expect. God invites us to return, uh, shows us how to return, and then promises, God promises us that He will restore us and welcome us when we return. Now, maybe that's actually the hard part of you to believe. Like, you, you're like, yeah, I, I, I get that I'm bad. I'm, I'm kind of really bad. I can believe the bad news about myself. It's the idea of God actually welcoming me and being merciful to me that I have a hard time believing. Um, I heard, you've probably heard this story before, the Hubble Space Telescope. $1.5 billion was spent on this. You know, you see back in time, basically, with this thing. It's so powerful. And, and everybody's all excited to see the first images from the Hubble Space Telescope, except they were, you remember this? They were blurry. One and a half billion dollars, and they had blurry images. And you know,
know why? It's because one of the mirrors in the telescope was messed up. And wouldn't you hate to be that guy? I mean, and can you imagine, there was no Twitter in the early 90s. Thank goodness. Uh, But can you imagine like if his name leaked and the way he would have been shamed? I mean, it it, it would have been awful. I I think there's a certain fear within us. Like, I, I can't come clean. I can't come back to God. He's just waiting to expose me. He's just waiting to shame me. And so we're kind of like Jason Bourne and the CIA keeps telling us, come on in, it'll be fine. And we're like, no, it won't. Like, I'm like, God, you're calling me, but I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm coming back in. We think, man, with what I've done, there's no way I'm going home. There's no way he's going to welcome me. There's no way he's going to forgive me. And yet look at, look at verse four. Verse four through seven here of Hosea. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoot shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. God promises, man, I will restore you. you. You'll be refreshed. You'll be restored. Your life will begin to have stability. I will make you beautiful. I will make you beautiful. You know, your, your life may feel dead right now. You may be full of addictions and despair and hopelessness, but God promises that he will cause you to flourish. And that he will cause you to flourish in such a way that people around you who come into contact with you will begin to flourish as well. Um, I started this series, you guys may remember we've been through this through the long run with a few illustrations from the book Redeeming Love, uh, which I refer to as a little Christian romance novel by Francine Rivers, which my wife recommended to me. It's, it's a allegory based on the story of Hosea, based on particularly the first part, Hosea's marriage to Gomer. Uh, In Redeeming Love, there's a guy named Michael Hosea who is told by God to go and to marry a prostitute named Angel. And so he goes and he rescues her uh, from prostitution and he marries her and he takes her home, but she keeps running away. And he keeps going to get her. And then she runs away. And then he goes to get her. And then finally he realizes, I I can't keep going to get her. God's going to have to change something in her heart. So he just lets her go. And she runs away. And over a period of time, God pretty dramatically changes her heart. So she's ready to go home. And like, if you hadn't read this, I'm sorry. I am giving away the ending. But you've had like 10 weeks. Um, And so, so, or more than that. So anyway... She's, she's, she's walking home and, and she sees Michael, her husband. And, this, and this, is, this is what the book says. Angel could see Michael working in the field. She was so full of conflicting emotions, she could hardly bear it. Self-doubt, self-hatred, struggling pride and fear. All the things that had sent her running so long ago and some that had kept her from going to him before now. She couldn't allow them to stop her again. And so she sees him and she's going to start walking closer. Doubt stirred again, but she 
fought it down. She wanted to shed all the barriers that had kept her from him. All those months of defiance and fear and uncertainty. She wanted to discard the horrible memories of her childhood and the guilt she had taken on herself for things she had been powerless to stop. She wanted desperately to be clean for him, to to be new. She wanted to strip away her past. Oh, if she could be Eve again, a new creature in paradise before the fall. And then she, she starts to walk the last little bit toward him. And in the book, she starts taking off her clothes one by one. And I'm reading this. I'm going, what in the world book did you get me to read, Susan? But, but then here's what, she's, here's what she's doing with that. It's, it's imagery the author is using. She's, get, she's trying to get rid of her past. As she walks back to her husband, she's, she's shedding her past. She's getting rid of all the things that had kept her away from him. She's getting rid of the things that had shamed her. She's getting rid of all the ways she had avoided being completely vulnerable with her husband. And so she comes to him as, as vulnerable as she could be. And he takes his shirt and he puts it over her and he welcomes her into his arms and he says, I love you. And then their, their family goes on to flourish as they together experience God's grace. And she has a ministry to former prostitutes. Uh, and so they begin to flourish as well because this one person has been changed by God's grace. The good news of Christmas is that God does invite you home. He invites you to return. He, he gives you a blueprint for what that looks like. And he promises to restore you. And to give you new life. But do you know how he's able to do that? And we are going to close with this. Do you know how he turned away his own anger so that he could welcome you home and remain just at the same time? He didn't just wait for you to come home. He sent his son to get you. And what does the son do? Well, there's this Old Testament story about snakes, oddly enough, which... John references in our reading this morning. And in that story, God had led his people out of slavery in Egypt, and yet they continued to grumble and complain and disobey God. And so God finally sends snakes among the people, poisonous snakes, and the people are being bitten, and there are people who are dead and people who are sick and dying. And they cry out to Moses and say, Pray to God for us. We're sorry. We repent. And so Moses prays to God and he takes away the serpents and he, he says do this put a bron- make a bronze serpent and stick it up on a pole and anybody who's been bitten by a snake if they will just look up at that serpent I will heal them and they will live and then what does what does John say in our text verse 14 as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus came into the world at Christmas. He took on human flesh. He underwent the miseries of this life. He was tempted just as you and I are tempted. And then He took the sin of His people on Himself. And He carried it to the cross. And he dealt with it there. And now God invites you to come to the cross and to throw your sin upon his son so that you can be freed from it.
The story of Christmas is the story of a manger and a baby. But don't divorce the story of a baby and a manger from the story of a man on a cross. The bad news has to be bad before the good news can really be good. Verse 8, O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them.